The Quocast, a status quo fan podcast. This is Jamie Dyer welcoming you to another edition of The Quocast. And today I am joined by Chief Squidger himself, Jason Hodgson. Um, Welcome to the podcast, Jason. Tell me, how did you get into status quo? Hi, Jamie. Uh, Thanks for having us on the show. How did I get into Quo? Oh, that goes back a long way. Um, I was brought up in a musical family, uh, but my mum and dad were a bit older than me, and I think we skipped two musical generations rather than one. So I, there was me growing up in the 80s, and my mum and dad like weren't into rock and roll or anything like that. They were still stuck in the days of Mario Lanza and Glenn Miller. Uh, so actually, it wasn't until, um, I believe it was my 16th birthday, and I was walking around the town centre with a bunch of friends and we decided to go into the market hall which had a big old second-hand record stall and they all got their pocket money out and proceeded to buy a second-hand record and I decided to join them and the one I bought was um, a second-hand copy of the Whatever You Want 7-inch because I'd heard it on an advert and liked it and it cost me 49 pence, took it home, played it, loved both sides, went back to the market hall the next week with another 49 pence, bought another second-hand record and three and a half thousand Quo records later, I'm still buying Quo records. Wow, three and a half thousand. Is, is, that, um, is, is that kind of pressings from all over the world? Yeah, that's everything. Um, if it says Quo on it, I will buy it. It's, it's like the set of the Mountaineer, why did you climb Everest? And he said, because it was there. And that's what collectors are like, really. If it's something there that you haven't already got, then then you want to have it, as long as the price is right, of course. So, uh, yeah, I collect anything and everything Quo related from anywhere in the world. And many Quo fans will recognise your name because you go back quite a way um, in journalism with them, don't you? I do, yeah, I suppose. I'm showing my age now, yeah, getting a bit old. Um, The first thing I ever did, and I've never been a journalist as such, I've just been a a fan and a collector and an occasional writer uh, rather than a journalist, Record Collector magazine that I got into buying religiously about six months after I bought my first record uh, published uh, their first price guide in many years in, I believe it was 1993 or something like that and I was a student at Liverpool University at the time which is where I met Paul Bruns who's still my writing partner to this day he was in, based in the same building and saw me walking down the road with a uh, with a Quo shirt on which nobody did in 1993 especially not in the university <laughs> um, anyway Record Collector put out this price guide and it was nonsense and I wrote and told them like you do when you're young I would have been what 20, 21 at the time I came back from lectures one day and the the porter said uh, there's been a phone call for you, a guy from London has been trying to get hold of you and he's run your parents in Harrogate and they've told him you're at university and he's run the university and they've given him the number of the halls of residence and then he's run here and left a message for you to get back. And it was the um, editor of Record Collector magazine who left a message and he said, uh, so I phoned him back and he said, uh, thanks very much for the letter, very interesting, very uh, enlightening in the way that you've like taken everything our expert has said and pretty much trashed it. <laughs> Do you want to tell us a bit more about that? So I did tell him a bit more and, uh, you know, justifying my comments. And then he said, uh, we're actually uh, looking to do another Quo item in the magazine. Would you be interested in writing it? And thinking on my feet, which I don't often do, but I did this time, I said... Uh, I said, yeah, I would love to write an article for Record Collector about status quo, but 
What I would really love to do is interview Francis and Rick to go with it. So can you fix that for me? And he said, yeah, why not? We'll have a go at fixing that. So he sent a letter uh, on record collector-headed paper that I've still got, and it said, uh, we have commissioned uh, Jason Hudson to write an article about the status quo, and uh, it was going to be published all over the world and sell hundreds of thousands of copies, because that was the circulation of the magazine at the time. Um, and we uh, authorised him to seek an official um, interview. I forwarded that on to David Walker, who was manager of Quo at the time, and several months later it took I got a response which said uh, if you can be in Stoke at half past three on Wednesday afternoon next week uh, get on the train that's going down to Euston Francis and Rick will be on it they'll just have left the Royal Dalton factory where they've been measured up for the Toby jugs that Royal Dalton did um, and we'll be sat on the train for two hours going down to Euston uh, so uh, you will have a first class train ticket provided and go and sit with them and do the interview there which is what I did for various reasons, the chats went on longer than they were uh, scheduled to do and it wasn't just Francis and Rick I was talking to because they were there with the entire management team which was David Walker, Simon Porter who at the time was PR man but of course now is their manager and several record company boards and uh, I think they were all quite interested to uh, see this scruffy long haired 21 year old sat down giving Francis and Rick a bit of a hard time about uh, <laughs> about uh, the end products that have come out under their name because at the time their, uh, their record deal with Vertigo was coming to a halt they were just signing with Polydor there had been all kinds of problems with record company politics and I was just getting really under their skin about it so I got some really good interview material uh, record collector were expecting two or three thousand words and they ended up with nearly twenty thousand which they then split over two magazines and uh, and that article seems to take on a life of its own. It's amazing how many people I meet at like Quo gigs or fan club gigs now who remember that. And I think it's just because it was a different set of questions. It wasn't the usual, you know, uh, how do you get your hair sold? Just what colour socks do you wear? Will you be playing rock and roll over the world? And are you an insecure little show-off? Instead of that, it was, why did this record end up looking like this? You know, uh, which was different. So, yeah, people remember it. So, yeah, my writing about Quo goes back to 93, published in 94, that article. Wow. I mean, what a, what a very interesting story that is, because um, that's, you know, from buying those secondhand records to then talking to them, that must have been some, um, some experience for you. I was terrified. I've never been as nervous in my life. I mean, I, I'd only seen them. Uh, I mean, I wasn't of an age to have seen them in the 70s or even the 80s. The first time I saw them was in the late 80s, um, 89, Bridge Bar, 5th of December. Uh, <laughs> so I, I'd seen them, what, maybe seven or eight times by the time I got the interview. And obviously I'd never met Francis Horick before. And then all of a sudden there I was in a first-class compartment in the train, sat not only with Francis and Rick, but also surrounded by their management team. Uh, yeah, and... People had said that uh, Francis had a reputation for being quite difficult with journalists, especially ones he'd never met before. Um, I sat down and the manager said, like, OK, you know, turn on the dictaphone, you're on. So I did, and I turned around and I said, hi, Francis. I just want to start off by saying that actually I'm not a journalist, I'm a fan who's been given... And I, I didn't even get the first sentence out before he just turned around and he gave me a withering look and said, how much longer are you going to bore me for? Uh, yeah, <laughs> talk about intimidating that's, the journalist. That's quite intimidating, isn't <laughs> Absolutely, it? Absolutely, yeah. 
So, uh, so at that point I thought, oh, it's, it's like that, is it? Well, I'm here now, so I'm, I'm going to give as good as I get. So but when he was uh, started telling his stories and some things he said where uh, I'm not sure who told him various facts, but uh, things were wrong in, in terms. He was talking about like the end products that the um, that the fans have to buy, and I was saying, well, what was in the shops isn't what you think was in the shops, and it was very clear in a way that um, really once the band had finished recording the material in the studio and handed it over to the record company, you know, a lot of cases it seemed that that's where their involvement ended and then they trusted the record company to put out um, the end product uh, you know that they thought they delivered and in a way I think it was a bit of a surprise to him in a couple of little aspects to to learn that uh, that what we as fans were presented with was not what they, the band had intended to hand over I think there was a bit of a disconnect there so we were really able to drill down on that and yeah I was able to give as good as I got and especially because uh, Rick at the time was doing a separate interview with uh, Mike Rhino who had just taken over from the makers off it was his first interview with the band and, and that overran so I ended up sat with Francis for a lot longer than I was supposed to do and I'd run out of scripts of questions and then we just started you know chewing the fat and talking about this that and the other the tape was running all the time and that's when we actually got the really meaty stuff that's when uh, David Walker started um, intervening as well and giving his opinion all of which ended up in the magazine article whether he intended it to or not <laughs> but but the record collector editor liked it <laughs> Well, I, I should think he did if, um, you know, because it, it is different with uh, a fan doing that to, to a journalist because you have looked into it in a much deeper um, way, I suppose, than, um, than perhaps a journalist would because they have so many other bands to write about. That's right, yeah. I think in many ways that only a real fan and collector could have, you know, gone off on that particular tangent of questions. The music journalists, uh, I'll speak to several of them, you know, they, they, they know everybody in the business, they can speak to any band, they've got a working knowledge of thousands and thousands of artists, but they don't particularly have a very in-depth knowledge of the majority of them. They have enough to get by in a conversation and ask a few, you know, general questions, but they're not drilling down into the specifics of the way that that particular interview went. No, and I, I suppose that the relationship that you were talking about between label and artist is something that you have since um, kind of been on the tail end of, what with Barrel and Squidger Records. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's different because Barrel and Squidger Records is just me. Um, I, I do a lot apart from the little bits that I can't do, such as the graphic design, Dave Renshaw does that, and obviously I don't manufacture the products myself, but... I tend to design them and everything. And when you're dealing with people who have been looked after by multinationals, it's a bit of a culture shift for them to be just looked after by one guy who's basically a fan sat at home on his laptop in his pants and <laughs> working it that way. So yeah, very very different dynamic for everybody involved. Um, I, I had no. Um, experience whatsoever in the music industry other than being an end consumer but I had a bit of an insight into uh, the workings of a chart because uh, one of my best school friends who 
we ended up being each other's best man. Uh, when he graduated university, he was part of a team that took over um, the compiling of a chart when Gallup lost that in 93, I think. It went to a company based in Leamington Spa called Millwood Brown. They started um, compiling the charts, doing it in a different way to how Gallup had done it, and, uh, and because he was part of a very small team who were uh, writing all the uh, programs and the algorithms for that, and then managing it and doing all the generations for years afterwards. Uh, we had lots of very, very interesting chats about who was having hits, who wasn't, why they were, why they weren't, and a lot of the time, well, chart hits have never been about the quality of the music, it's always been about the mechanics of the release and you know the way that it's been multi-formatted and what's been eligible and what hasn't and a million other really boring things like that but you gave me a bit of an insight into how uh, you can successfully chart something um, and things not to do as well and over the years I've watched uh, a few quo campaigns come and go where some have been very well run and I've uh, ended up with big hits and I've seen a couple of disastrous campaigns where the mechanics uh, behind the release has been all wrong and, uh, and the release has floundered and uh, just because of uh, my time talking to the friend who was running that I've been able to uh, predict these things quite successfully um, and that led into the success of the first Baron Squidger record. Yeah, which was uh, Rock Remembers Rick. It was a Rock Remembers Rick EP, yeah, yeah, that's right and uh, when you did the podcast about the uh, Lancaster Bombers album, you mentioned that that one had troubled the charts. It, it actually had three chart runs. Uh, the first time it came out, it went straight into the physical singles chart at number two. Um, the number one record that Christmas in, on the physical chart was by the Charlatans, but that wasn't a Christmas record. So actually, members of the Core Fan Club, the thousand members of the Core Fan Club who ended up singing the final chorus on that song, will all be very pleased to know that they had the biggest selling Christmas record in Britain of Christmas 2017. There's that one record on there, the uh, Na Na Na, which is a fantastic collaboration of various different artists. And there's also um, obviously massive um, wagons and um, walkway as well. Yeah, um, when walkway did Rain uh, with John Coglin on drums, I... Um, as you may know, I write a column for every edition of From the Makers of the Official Fan Club magazine. Um, I do the collector's column and talk about everything that any core member, current or past, has uh, has been on that's been released since the last magazine came out. And of course, John Coglan was on that record, so I, I phoned up Spud and got a couple of sentences from him talking about the record. I also phoned up Walkway and spoke to Chris Reddy, their frontman, and he told me how that collaboration came about. So I'd already touched base with those guys. When Massive Wagons recorded Back to the Stack as their tribute to Rick, uh, they were playing um, in Manchester um, January 2017, so it was just a month after, after Rick had died, and that was their live debut of Back to the Stack. And they were supporting the Wild House, and the Wild House are my other main band who I've followed since the early 90s and collected everything that any of them have ever done. Um, so I was there anyway to watch the Wild Hearts. Massive Wagons were there as support, which was a nice bonus, and they debuted Back to the Stack that night. So uh, I was there to witness its first ever live outing. And afterwards I spoke to uh, Baz Mills, 
their front man and said, look, I'm a massive Crow fan, I'm also a massive Wild Arts fan, um, I really like what you've done in your tribute to Rick, it's fantastic, it's a great song, get everybody, you know, um, celebrating the life of Rick, even though it was a Wild Hearts fan base you were performing it to, it, and uh, I said I wrote for the fan club magazine, and, um, you know, we just had a chat about this and that, and touched base and everything. Then later in the year, when I decided I was... Uh, it was going to have to fall to a fan to do a tribute to Rick because the band hadn't done one for whatever reasons that we weren't going to. I thought, do you know what, I'll put a tribute record out because it's not going to happen otherwise. And because I already had this, you know, uh, kind of relationship with Walkway and with Massive Wagons, I just got in touch with both of them and I said, I'm thinking of putting out a charity single, uh, will you contribute your tracks to it? So I had already made EP. What a great EP it is. Before the podcast, I was listening to um, the tracks from that EP and, and they really do represent um, most sides of Quo because there's lots of them. Yeah, that's good to know. Thanks for that because um, obviously I, I was really going out on a limb with this. You know, just as a fan, I had no right to represent, um, well, certainly not represent the band because it was completely unofficial, nothing to do with the band at all. Um, also to say that I represented the fan base, I, I couldn't say that either. I could just say I am, um, you know, connected to the fan club. Um, and as a fan, I am putting out what I would like to see as a tribute to Rick. And I thought, well, it'd be really nice actually to get the entire fan base involved in the making of the record. Uh, so when we got the two songs, uh, I thought, well, if we play this at 33 RPM, uh, we can actually squeeze about another three minutes onto one side of it. So, again, I was down the pub one night during the fact with the guys and I said, you know, what we should do is write, I should write a song just about, you know, about that Christmas Eve. Because it was a very weird Christmas and I think all of the core fans felt this. Uh, we got this devastating news at tea time on Christmas Eve and then actually I was working the Christmas Eve night shift in my brother's pub and I didn't even have time to absorb this news at all I, you know I heard it like half an hour before I was due on duty and I walked into the pub and my friend who was stood behind the bar he actually put on it's Christmas time as I walked into the pub and he said you know I'm just playing this for Rick and I said honestly mate just turn it off turn it off please I can't bear to listen to it and we all had that feeling didn't we that uh, you know, there's great big core fans and collectors and, you know, followers and everything. We all felt like we'd lost somebody that Christmas, but, but our families didn't. It wasn't a family member who died, it wasn't a friend who died, it was just a pop star, you know, so, you know, it's like, you know, he wasn't a mate, why are you obsessed? You know, shut up, enjoy your Christmas dinner. You know? And we all felt that disconnect. I think that's something that a lot of the core fans had in common. We had Christmas Day, we were surrounded by people who weren't affected by it, and yet we all were. And I thought, I'd like to do something that represented that. So that's how I ended up, and I thought, uh, it's also got to be a song that people know, so it's probably going to be, have to be an adaptation of an existing song. So I looked through things that Rick had written, and I couldn't find anything that was like short enough, or sweet enough, or snappy enough, or something that could be rocked up into something different. And, and then I heard na 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 and I thought, you know what, you can do that because you, you've only got ten lines, there's two verses of five lines each and na 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 and I thought you could really take that from, you know, the cross-legged campfire strum along that it is at the minute and you could speed it up, you could rock it up and you can make it something completely different. So uh, 
yeah, I've decided to have a go at constructing something completely different out of that. And then all I needed was a band and a big name to uh, sell it and a studio. <laughs> and I had none of these things. <laughs> I just had an idea written down at the back of a beer mat. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, the, um, the beer mat thing, I mean, some of the greatest ideas are born from that, aren't they? Well, that's where Barrel and Squidger came from. It came from our pub quiz team name that was uh, Squiddle and Badger. Don't ask me why the reasons for that are long, long forgotten in the midst of time. Uh, but one night the, uh, the quiz master had had a few too many drinks. And when he was reading our name out as the winners at the end, instead of saying Barrel and Squidger, he said, sorry, instead of saying Squiddle and Badger, he said Barrel and Squidger. I'm getting it the wrong way around now as well. Um, and, and it stuck. So we became the Barrel and Squidger team. So then, again, when I'm sat in the pub saying, I really want to set up a record label and do this, and somebody said, what will you call it? I said, well, Barrel and Squidger Records, why not? It's, uh, it's distinctive and easy to find on Google, you know. I said, yeah, but what does it mean? What does Barrel and Squidger mean? How are you going to design a logo for Barrel and Squidger? I said, well, you'll have a barrel, and then you'll have a squidger, which is half squiddle and half badger, and it sits on the barrel and it plays its records. There you go, job done. And I sketched it out on the back of the beer mat and uh, sent it off to my uh, to my cousin's daughter, who's quite good at art, and she sketched it into something better. Then off it went to the graphic designer, Dave Renshaw, who professionalised it, and and there you are. We had a uh, we had a record label name and logo, and it's, as a name, it's a, it's a cryptozoological Google whack, Jamie. <laughs> that's a word that's never been used before in your podcast a cryptozoological google whack no, never before and <laughs> possibly never again the record label was born from, from that release and uh, was a great success and you've gone on to release lots of um, indie records including Sound of Status who were at the convention a few years ago what a band they are they're a fantastic band and they're a really great bunch of guys and they impressed me no end. Um, I'd already seen them uh, earlier in the year when they played McVention up in Glasgow. And uh, what year was this? 2017, yeah. So so early in 2017 was McVention, or was it there 2016? I can't, can't remember, long time ago now. Uh, and um, I was then, Yvonne, who runs the fan club, she was there as well. And as they were playing, I said to her, we have to get these guys on at Butlins. They're so good, they're excellent, and, um, and not only were they fantastic as being a core covers band, uh, but they also do a really fine line of their own material, and it really fits into this new movement that's going around the minute called a Nwaka, or the new wave of classic rock, uh, because it wears its influences on its sleeve, it's influenced by Quo, by ACDC, by Airborne, all these kinds of bands, and it's a real, fantastic standalone original classic rock album um, and again that comes back to the uh, recording of um, Na 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 so if I go back to the start of that uh, this will be another 10 minutes sorry <laughs> um, yeah CJ Wildheart uh, uh, as I said I followed the Wildhearts for a lot of years and you know kind of spoken to most of them over years and bought everything they'd done CJ was living locally uh, he was living in Nursebury, that's just three miles away from Harrogate. And uh, before I really knew him, I'd just met him a couple of times as a fan. He, uh, he put a post up on Facebook and he said, uh, he said, I'm making a solo album, which is 
she was self-releasing and being, he'd been sent the test pressings um, of the vinyl release and he had to um, give the uh, go-ahead to the factory. Uh, his deadline uh, was like two days hence from putting this notice up on Facebook and but he said, I don't own a turntable and I desperately need to play this record somewhere where I can just go around somewhere, put the record on, sit down for an hour and just absorb it and make sure it all plays all right. Uh, do I know anybody in the vicinity who's got a record player? So I sent him a message and said, yeah, by all means, you come round and uh, play it on my record player. It'd be great, you know, get to have a good chat with a member of the Wild Hearts and get an advanced you know, exclusive sneak preview of his solo album. Um, so he came round to my place, played the record, and then we got chatting about this and that and the other, and uh, he saw the size of my record collection, all the quo as well as all the uh, Wild Hearts stuff. And he said, uh, actually, his first gig... Uh, was uh, Quo in Germany in 1984 when he was growing up on, on an army base. He said, I can't remember exactly where or when it was. And it just so happened that uh, FDMO, the fan club at the time, was publishing uh, an enormous book uh, by a guy called Andy Flemings called 4500 Gigs, and it was the most uh, definitive uh, Quo gig history. And I was proofreading... Uh, that book at that time as CJ was there so we were able to look through Andy Fleming's book and find out uh, when this gig was uh, which was CJ's first ever gig uh, Rossi, Parfit, Lancaster, Andy Bown and Pete Kersher we went for a couple of beers afterwards and we were talking Quill, we were talking the Wild Hearts uh, and I thought uh, when I needed a name who could appear on my version of Na 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 I thought well why not give CJ a ring because the worst thing that can happen is that somebody will say no and the entire premise of the charity record was uh, let's just ring up as many people as you can uh, ask them to get involved and the worst that can happen is that they will say no and as it happens nearly everybody said yes the only people who said no were ones who were uh, booked elsewhere who weren't physically able to do it and I won't name names but the vast majority of them were actually apologetic and saying what a great idea it is and you know you've got some good names involved already and everything so the reaction to it was far far better than they ever expected so CJ agreed to be a part of the record um, he said he, he uh, didn't have the time because he was uh, working on his on you know releasing his own solo album he said he didn't have the time to um, record the entire song but he said yeah you can put me down for the solo and maybe some backing vocals or something so I now had a big name a big star who was going to be involved in it but I didn't have a studio and I didn't have the rest of the band and then I was reading the uh, the local paper <laughs> just two days later and in the local paper was a story about a guy living in Harrogate who'd set up his own recording studio and I recognised the name and I thought I know this guy because uh, I mentioned earlier that my uh, brother had a pub in Harrogate and it had a function room upstairs and a, a bunch of uh, greasy hairy rockers used to come in every couple of months, hide the room and put on their own rock nights and he was one of these guys. So he'd have remembered me from serving them drinks all night and I also happened to know that he was a massive Wild Hearts fan. I'd often wear a Wild Hearts shirt behind the bar and we got talking about that as well. So I contacted him completely out of the blue, having not seen him for a couple of years, and I said, uh, you may remember me from, you know, the Rock Nights at the Empress in Harrogate, um, and I know you're a massive Wild Arts fan, and I'm putting together a charity record for Rick Parfit, all the money's going to go to a kids' cancer charity. Um, I need a studio, I need a house band. In return for that, um, CJ Wild Art is going to be on the record, and he'll come into your brand new studio. How's that? 
<laughs> so he was very intrigued, wanted to know more, and he agreed to uh, produce a record. So, so uh, he brought in some local uh, instrumental talent, which uh, included the guitarist Ben Marsden, who was also playing with another Wild Heart at the time. He was playing with Danny McCormack in a band called The Main Grains. Uh, ben is now playing his trade in the band of Warner Hodges, who's the guitarist in Jason and the Scorchers, who supported quote Milton Keynes Bowl that day in 1984. So that's another nice quote connection. So we've got the backing track laid down and uh, we're going to get some professional vocalists coming to do the lead vocal. And uh, a couple of passed through the studio. Uh, and the producer had been grabbing all the artists who came in and said, well, I want like 20 uh, vocal layers of all the na na na's, I can really build it on massive. Um, so we had loads and loads of people who'd laid down the na na na's, but they did uh, try to find somebody who would suit for the lead vocal. And they'd looked at my new lyrics for the song, um, and you know, listened to it in conjunction with the backing track, with the rhythm, guitar, and everything that we got laid down. And they'd said, well, it doesn't scan, it's too wordy, there's too many syllables, it doesn't fit. Um, so I'm sat there in the studio with John Shepard, the producer, one night, listening to the work in progress, and he said, this is the problem I've got, your lyrics don't fit. And I said, yeah, they do. No, they don't, the professional vocalist can't make it fit. And I said, well, I know it fits because, you know, I've shown it in my head a thousand times. He said, well, there's a microphone, off you go. And I said, well, what do you mean I can't sing? <laughs> I was in a rock band once and I, uh, I was fired after one gig and it was the correct decision. <laughs> but he said, uh, well, he said, just do it for the time and then if you say that the lyrics scan, then just go down and lay it down, get the timing right, and then we can hand it over to a professional vocalist. And I went, yeah, that's okay, then I can do that. And it was just me and him in the studio late one night. So I went and stood by the microphone and uh, he played me the backing track into the headphones and, and I just sat along and uh, put down the guide vocal. And he said, uh, after I'd laid it down, he said, well, that was good. He said, you got the timing right. I now see that, yes, it does scan, yes, it does fit. He said, do you know where you went wrong? And I said, yeah, I missed a couple of notes. I've got better ears and I've got ability. I can hear if something's wrong, but I can't necessarily perform it correctly. Uh, so he said, we'll do it again. I don't need to do it again. I got the timing right, and that was what you wanted me to do it for. He said, well, look, he said, not being silly, but... Uh, you know, it's a voluntary thing. We're really strapped for time. You want the whole thing finished, you know, in a couple of days. You know, you're not paying for it. Uh, just get out there and do it again. If you know where you went wrong, just see if you can, you know, get it right. So I tried it another couple of times, and the third time I got the timing and the notes more or less right. Uh, so we took what we had then and we sent it off to CJ uh, to say, look, this is a work in progress. So start on, you know, constructing your solo and the guitar stems that are going to go over the final choruses and everything. And he came back the next day and he said, uh, I've recorded the solo at home in my home studio. And I thought, damn, damn, that's not right. Because I'd said to the guy that in return for producing it for free, I would get CJ into his studio. So I said to CJ, can you pop into the studio anyway? Course, you know this is this is how I've got the studio time for free you know he wants to meet you he wants the prestige of having you in his studio and he said yeah sure I'll pop in and put down some backing vocals and, great fantastic so he came in and as he walked in that night he said so that work in progress he sent me who was that on lead vocals I said well that was me but it was just my guide vocal it's going to be replaced by a professional shortly and he said nah man nah, you've got to keep it so it's got a really good narrative quality I said, what do you mean by narrative quality? <laughs> you mean more that it was uh, more spoken than sun? He went, yeah, but it works. I said, does it? Are you sure? Went, yeah. 
producer said, he said, listen, when one of the Wild Arts tells you that something works in a record, you listen to them. You take their advice, you know. So I said, yeah, but I didn't really want to front this record. I wasn't actually supposed to be on it at all as a performer. I was just putting together other artists. I went, no, you've got to go with it. I said, well, my voice is far too thin and weedy. It's completely exposed. So I said, rather than just put down backing vocals on the chorus, I said, can you like do a harmony line through the verses as well? And then my friend called Boss Kane came and did another harmony line on the second verse and, and they were all mixed in together. So yeah, not only did I accidentally end up being on the record and accidentally end up taking the lead vocal, I also accidentally ended up singing a duet with a wild heart who was only ever going to put the uh, solo down. So none of this was planned. <laughs> it all just happened. Well, it was, um, as US painter Bob Ross would say, a happy accident. It was a very happy accident, yeah, yeah. And then I thought, how can I... Uh, yeah, going back to what we were talking about what, some time in the last century now. <laughs> Sorry for going on a bit. Uh, I thought, how can I get the fan base to get into this? And, the, you know, uh, my head was coming up and I thought, I know, I know. Let's get the entire fan base to sing the final chorus because you all know it anyway, apart from the fact that I've changed the words of the final nananas to uh, we'll light a candle each Christmas Eve for Rick. And I thought, well, surely they can learn that in two minutes on stage and then I can get a thousand members of a fan base to sing it. Uh, and we can record them and uh, and they'll all really get behind the record because they'll all be on it. So I didn't know actually how we were going to uh, pull this off and how we were going to teach this onto the crowd and get them to sing on and do it all in time and everything until I was uh, given a five minute spot by Yvonne to get out on the stage and do it and it was going to be just before Sound of Status went on stage and I thought, oh, do you know what? And I thought, actually, if Sound of Status are there on the stage with me, playing it and singing it with me, then that will make it so much easier to get um, to get the crowd to join in on it, and I will feel much less exposed and idiotic, <laughs> you know. I'll have a band behind me. So, so an hour before Sound of Stasis with you on stage, myself and Yvonne went into their dressing room backstage and told them all about the project and, and um, asked, asked them if they would go out on stage with me before their set and uh, lead the crowd in a thousand on signal, thousand strong signal, and. Uh, and they said yes, they weren't phased by it at all. They agreed to it instantly and they couldn't have been more professional about it and they were absolutely fantastic and I cannot speak highly enough of them as a band. Oh, it, it really does finish off that record beautifully and as I said, it was the start of, of uh, quite an association with um, all things status quo on record because um, Barrel and Squidger since then have released... Um, obviously, the the Bombers album, which is exceptional. Thank you. Yeah, um, well, that came about uh, because Alan was coming back to, uh, to the 2019 convention as well. Um, after he'd done the 2017 one. Incidentally, I was talking to Alan backstage before the 2017 one, and I showed him like the poster for the Rock Remembers Ricky P, and he said, "said it looks great." I went, "Thank you." He said, "Don't do it." No. What? I said, take my advice, don't do it. I said, what do you mean? He said, two things. Singles don't make money. Singles are lost leaders, especially seven inch final single. Not even state of the court, I put out a seven inch single for 15 years at that point. And he said, Rick having died is a bandwagon. There's a lot of people jumping on that bandwagon, trying to make money out of Rick. So he said, it's coming from a good place. You're doing it for charity. 
But he said, take my advice, don't do it. And I thought about it and I thought, do you know what? He's absolutely right in what he says. Singles don't make money if you distribute them through shops. So you're only getting, you know, the dealer price. But I will be dealing direct with people. Um, and also about the bandwagon thing, I thought, well, I understand completely what he's saying, but this is something where I'm getting a thousand members off from the makers off to sit along on it so that they can be involved and every penny of the profit is going to go to the Show and Smile Foundation. And I thought, I'm sure that the fan base will get behind that. So, actually, I ignored Alan's advice on that one. <laughs> and in a way, I'm glad I did. Yeah, so, Baron Squidge was set up originally purely just to do the Rock Remembers Ricky P. But after we'd had success with that, I thought, well, why not keep it as a label and go off and do some other stuff? I'd signed Sandersteers, so I put their record out, because they deserved it. Um, and then Alan had, well, Alan has quite a few bits of material that he's had kicking around for a long time that's never come out. And he wanted to bring something to uh, the convention, something new that the fans had never heard. He'd found this recording of himself playing with John Coughlin in Sydney in 1989. It had been professionally recorded um, on a mobile recording studio. But the tape he had uh, was not the best quality and it was mono. And he'd sent it off to John Eden and said, can you do anything with this? John Eden, of course, was like uh, Quo producer and engineer around the late 70s, early 80s and then he came back on the scene again when he completely took apart the rock and all of the world and then reconstructed it and made it sound as a Frantic Four album could sound. Uh, so yeah, John Eden was sort of back in the Quo world so Alan had sent him this bombers tape and said, can you do anything with it? And John Eden said, well, no, not really because of the quality of the tape. So Alan had a rummage and then he'd actually found a different tape uh, which was like a, a multi-microphone feed and you know, this, this, this technical stuff I don't really know or understand or need to know. Anyway, he sent this other tape off to John Eden and John went, now we're talking, we can do something with this. So he cleaned it up and sprinkled it with his fairy just as he, as he does and it sounds absolutely phenomenal. Phenomenal. So Alan had then been talking to Yvonne about the convention and she'd got Andy Gamble involved who runs the uh, film crews who put the DVDs together and everything and he's an audio-visual man and we're saying, what can we do with this? Shall we just give it to the fans as a download? And Yvonne, with her collector's head on, said, well, no, we, we should do something better with this. So then they started talking to um, Andy about, can you knock up some CDs and Andy was going to sort out some you know greenback CDRs or something just so we had a, a cheap product to give to the fans and at some point uh, oh yeah Andy was talking to uh, Dave Renshaw who does the artwork he got involved in a slipcase for it and at one point all three of them said this is too good for this this shouldn't just be like a, a giveaway or a cheap knockoff item this deserves to be a really nice product and all three of them, pretty much independently, said to Alan, said, why don't you get in touch with Jason and see if Barrel and Squidge will release it properly? And they told me about it as well, what was going on. And, uh, and then I got in touch with Alan and I said, well, let's do it. Let's, uh, let's give it the release that it deserves. I said, I've got an idea, let's do red, white and blue vinyl, we'll do a CD as well. What do you think? And Alan said, well, do you think it would work? You know, do you think there's a project there? Do you think you can do it without losing money? I said, I'm sure I can. Sure we can, because we're going to do it as a really small boutique pressing. We're going to sell it direct to the core fan base. Um, 
there's going to be no middleman, you know, it's all going to come to us, I'm sure we can make it work. So at that point, we started developing this project. Now, uh, Dave had already started on the artwork, so I just needed to uh, tweak it, I needed to uh, squidgerate it, put the squidger logos on it and everything. And also because a lot of live recordings are uh, bootlegs, or they're assumed to be bootlegs, I, uh, I said to Alan, can we have a quote from you, a contemporary quote that we can date, to go on the sleeve to make it clear that this is an official authentic product. So we got that. Uh, but all of this was only about three months before convention. Uh, it was a bit of a rush job at this point and uh, when you uh, reviewed the um, album in your last podcast you gave it an excellent review but one point you picked up on uh, was that the CD was only in a slipcase which was a little bit disappointing um, and I completely agree with you on that one I just want to explain why um, it's because uh, we'd run out of time the, um, it had to go to the factory uh, the factory takes the best part of three months to create a product and unlike any normal release where you can you know find out when the factory will have it for add on a couple of weeks of contingency and then say that is the release date we were working backwards from a fixed release date that couldn't change so we had to just pilot to the factory what we had at that point and because i only came in to the project when it was already so far down the line we just went with what we had so yes i do agree with you with most other releases i would do this on a cd you know i'd like to do it in a proper plastic case with a booklet and an essay and that kind of thing but in this case we just had to get it to the factory so that explains that yeah it it does and um it's it doesn't harm the product because really it's about what's on the cd and what is on the cd which now as you say um you were involved after the process but what's on the cd is is a great record of a um a rarely kind of acknowledged time it's a phenomenal performance and it's not one that people in Britain were particularly aware of. Um, even a lot of the hardcore core fans weren't particularly familiar with the Bombers. When Alan went off to Australia in, um, well, after he'd uh, finished with Quo, he did the Party Boys, and you know, the, the Party Boys version of He's Gonna Step On You Again got released in Britain, but the album didn't. Um, and then the Bombers Project didn't get released in Britain at all. It came out in uh, came out in Australia and Japan and Holland and Germany, but it came out at a point where A and M, the label who put it out originally, uh, were going through changes and going through a takeover, I believe, and the personnel were changing. Um, so it kind of came out as a contractual obligation, but it never had any follow up and it never had any support, and it never had a British release. And because. John Coughlin's role in the Bombers was to, you know, bed in the band in its very early days and work on the tracks in the life setting and everything else like that. But then he did go into the studio with them at the start of the recording process, but for whatever reason, uh, from having spoken to him, it was a, a touch of him not journeying with the band in the studio and also a bit of homesickness. I think he just wanted to get back to England. Um, it didn't work. So John walked away from the band at that point and they replaced the drummer and it was a different drummer who was on the, the studio album of the Bombers. So yeah, uh, the fact that uh, John and Alan had played together regularly for about six months in a band called the Bombers in Australia in 1987 uh, was not a well-known fact in Britain. Well, no, but now, thanks to your release, um, it's certainly out there. And, um, I mean, what a what a feeling that must be for you as a long-time Quo fan to release something quite rare. It's an honour. It's an absolute honour because, as I said, I, I'm just... I'm, I'm a one-man band. I'm one bloke who's a fan who came up with an idea on the back of the beer mat. And on the first record, I had a member of the Frantic Four... 
I had a member of the Wild Hearts. I had two up and coming bands, one of which Massive Wagons has gone on to great chart success now. Uh, the album they put out after the EP went into the top 20 and then the follow-up album went into the top 10. They're a real big name now, Massive Wagons. They're absolutely thriving and they're a fantastic bunch of guys and I couldn't be happier for them. So that was the first release. The second release was the Tallywags single, which was for the 28 World Cup. That's led by Paul Cook from the Sex Pistols, Danny McCormack from the Wild Hearts, his brother Chris McCormack, who was in a hit band in the late 90s called Three Colors Red, and has also played with Gary Newman and Adam Ant and people like that. Uh, Tom Spencer, whose project it actually was, who plays with Paul Cook and Chris McCormack in the, um, in the Professionals, which is a Sex Pistols spin-off. And uh, Olga, Olga from the Toy Dolls, best known from Nelly the Elephant. He, uh, he goofs around in a comedy punk band, but he's actually a guitar virtuoso. Um, so to have the caliber, that caliber of musician on my second release was an absolute honor as well. And that record went straight into the physical singles chart at number eight. Uh, it was actually the only um, single associated with the World Cup that charted in 2018. So that was another, you know, amazing honor, something to, uh, something to be chuffed about. And it's just kind of gone from strength to strength from then. People sat up and noticed when I, uh, when I delivered the number two chart entry of the first record. And actually the uh, Ricky EP charted on the further two occasions uh, when Massive Wagons charted uh, their follow-up album. Uh, it went straight down number one, number rock chart, number 16, I believe it was on the album chart. Uh, the rock remembers Ricky EP, uh, represented by Christmas Eve Na Na Na, re-entered the singles chart in September. <laughs> it's funny to see a Christmas record going back into the singles chart in September. And then when we relaunched it properly, uh, Christmas 2018, uh, this time with a, a lot of support videos from, uh, we had Susie Quattro, we had Don Powell from Slade, we had Ginger Wildhart, as well as CJ and Matthew Wagons, we had Jackie Linton, John Coughlin, uh, various people like Patty Parfit. And we all did bits to camera holding up the record and saying, you know, this is for... Uh, this is for charity, it's in memory of Rick Parfit, you know, go out and buy it. And again, for me, you know, to see people like Susie Koch and Don from Slade actually holding my record and saying go out and buy it, oh, it's just amazing, absolutely amazing. Oh, an incredible feeling, I'm sure. And uh, I'm, I'm sure that I speak for all the fans when I say that, um, that, that we hope that uh, Barrel and Squidger Records goes from strength to strength in the, in the, well, in the future. And, um, the upcoming record you've got coming up, the John Coughlin's Quo Lockdown record, how did that come about? Right, this is one where there's been discussions behind the scenes of this, that and the other, so I can't particularly say too much about that at this moment in time until uh, we actually announce it, but yes, we have already announced that we're going to put that record out, but this has been a very, very strange year, and I set off a year with plans for uh, a few projects which, were, which have been discussed with various musicians and because of what's happened because people haven't been able to get into studios you know various different reasons all those plans have changed and lots of them have been put on hold um lockdown is a great great record i thought was uh, potential there to get it out on a, a seven inch um no doubt it will be on the album that they've already said they're recording so that's no secret. Um, yeah, there is a release there, but uh, again, vinyl pressing factories are running a lot slower than they were before, and they were already pretty slow before. So what was a three-month lead time is now stretching to four to five months with no guarantee of release date, all of which has pushed 
the sun relating to lockdown further and further away from the relevance of the first lockdown. The fact that we now have a second lockdown is another happy accident. Uh, but again, it will be a while before we can have a product ready to bring to market because because we knew that we were going to be, you know, so far away from the first lockdown, I said, well, what we should do is make it a double A side with your second single, and then the release can be contemporary with the second single and also include lockdown as a double A side. Uh, but again, with difficulties of getting to the studio, etc., um, the second uh, track uh, is, is nearly done, but it's not completed yet. So uh, until that is ready to go and mixed and everything, we won't have. Um, a, a specific release plan so yeah I am conscious that it's been a while since we announced it but uh, because of what's going on around us uh, I'm sure everybody understands why you know things are running slower than we would like them to run oh it's completely understandable in the current climate but uh, you know I'm sure there are many fans out there that are looking forward to that release Thank you so much, Jason, for appearing on, on the podcast today. Um, as, really, last question here. Do you have any kind of ambitions of, of maybe the kind of records that you want to release in the future? So far, I mean, I started off with no business plan other than just to release the Rock Remembers Ricky page. Um, what it's grown into since then, and I know the label doesn't have the biggest discography, it is still very much you know, a, a cottage industry, um, so whatever comes my way is, as we've already said, a happy accident. Uh, but, yeah, I'm not particularly going out there trying to hunt down too many projects, uh, because it's difficult and I'm... Um, I'm bankrolling it all myself, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm limited there with what I can do. I, I am having people approaching me, uh, saying, we've got this, do you want to put that out? And that's a really nice feeling. Yeah, so to answer your question, is there anything in particular that I would like to see on there? Um, there were a couple of things we were talking about earlier in the year that haven't happened that I would be incredibly chuffed to see on there if they can happen next year or the year after, just with musicians that I respect greatly. Uh, this is you know people in bigger bands doing side projects um, and again I seem to have sort of become a bit of a repository where a name who is very busy with the day job uh, can do a side project and say can you just handle that because you know the big record company doesn't want something that isn't going to sell 100,000 copies uh, so that's, that is a booty release and I think if I can just position myself there and pick up that kind of thing that will tick over, you know, a few hundred or a couple of thousand copies or something like that, then that would be a very good place to be. Well, yes, and um, I do wish you all the best of luck with it. And, uh, Jason, I'd like to say thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today. Thanks very much, Jim. It's been a pleasure. I'm sorry I've waffled on far too long. Uh, not a problem. <laughs>